Hello and welcome to Dissecting Philosophy with Dr. MacDonald. In this episode, we're going to be discussing the section of reading and writing in Nietzsche's Thus Spoke Zarathustra. So we're going to be looking at exactly what is reading and writing for Nietzsche, what distinguishes them, what makes a good book and a bad book. And we also have a wee discussion talking about social media. And through this section as well, we have Nietzsche wanting us to unleash the creative beast, basically, within us. And how exactly do we go about that? So let's get cracking into this fabulous wee section of reading and writing. Of all writings, I love only that which is written with blood. Write with blood, and you will discover that blood is spirit. It is not an easy thing to understand unfamiliar blood. I hate the reading idler. He who knows the reader does nothing further for the reader. Another century of readers and the spirit itself will stink. That everyone can learn to read will ruin in the long run, not only writing, but thinking too. Once spirit was God, then it became man, and now... It is even becoming mob. He who writes in blood, in aphorisms, does not want to be read. He wants to be learned by heart. In the mountains, the shortest route is from peak to peak. But for that, you must have long legs. Aphorisms should be peaks. And those to whom they are spoken should be big and tall of stature. The air thin and pure danger near, and the spirit full of a joyful wickedness. These things suit one another. I want hobgoblins around me, for I am courageous. Courage that scares away phantoms makes hobgoblins for itself. Courage wants to laugh. So straight off the bat, we have Nietzsche providing us with the difference between writing and reading. On the one hand, he says, what's written is written with blood. And for the reading aspect, if all of what writers did was adhere to what readers wanted, the writing will stink. So from that, we can have quite a good picture of what Nietzsche's distinction between reading and writing really entails. And that is that writing requires belief, passion, conviction, and thought. Whilst his reading itself is something that's very passive, doesn't require any thought, and what you do is you absorb another person's passions and beliefs in the process of reading them. And it's almost in a way that we become so caught up and almost enamored with an author and in what they say or really passionate about a series of novels such as Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones recently they become so caught up between the whole world building and another person's passion and convictions and what they're giving you but at the same time what's lost is you in that aspect is you're so caught up in someone else's world that you're forgetting all about your own world in the first place i think that's quite an important point is that we can be so caught up at times enjoying different people's perspectives different ideas of things 
we can lose at times our own sense of ideas and and what exactly is our own opinion and our own idea about that. And we touch upon kind of a deeper sense of what Nietzsche is in relation to thought here, that thought requires us to have a struggle with ourselves and no longer be just this passive person who likes to absorb and suck in and casually go by with someone else's opinion. When it comes to our own thoughts and ideas, we actually have to have an immense struggle just to actually think for ourselves here and form our own opinions. And from all that as well, you can get an idea of what exactly would make a good book and a bad book for Nietzsche. In the sense of that a bad book would submit exactly to the reader's expectations, become an incredibly passive and require absolutely no thought whatsoever from the reader. It's just a nice little enjoyable read that you can just casually have whilst enjoying a nice cup of tea and a biscuit and a nice sunny relaxing afternoon. It's sort of like a novel or a book that's written in a sort of paint-by-numbers aspect. And it's quite a good term, that, of paint-by-numbers, because it's exactly what Nietzsche means. It requires absolutely no thought. And you have those wonderful painting books that you just simply fill in the blanks of whatever colour it tells you to fill in. And there's absolutely no thought process that goes into it whatsoever because it's already done for you. And then we have, on the other hand... What makes up then an idea of a good book should be one that challenges our expectations where we don't see necessarily the plot going in the direction where we thought it was going to go or requiring us to actually force us to think at times as well and challenge our views and to reevaluate our own opinions about things. Those are the good books in which it doesn't adhere to the norm and it doesn't adhere to society's view of things necessarily, but forces us to challenge and reconsider how we think and challenge those norms. Those are the good books because it requires us to think, actually requires us to engage with the material actually requires an effort on our part and again what's the problem is that that effort is usually considered to be quite a negative thing because what we like on the one hand is being quite idle and passive about things we don't like things that normally try to challenge us and rock the boat we like just having that cup of tea relaxing in the garden with a wee book but it's just like well every now and then we need those books and those will be the books that will be the cream of the crop that will rise to the top, as they say. The books that will hold over time. Why is that the case? Because those are the ones that the ones that challenge us, runs us to force us to think, are normally the ones that also are making a point and a challenge to how we think at a given time period as well. And this is where Nietzsche goes into his own stylistic choice of an aphorism in which we have those famous even just couple of sentences at a time is an aphorism. And we have some of the famous ones, of course, a predicate of war, what does not kill us makes us stronger. But also the reason why he says here he's chosen aphorisms, it's not something that's passive but actually requires us 
forces us to think about exactly what he's saying is almost at times you get this in Zarathustra as well in which you do have this quite obscure metaphors and so forth like we have right in this section talking about hobgoblins and you've got to really try and think what exactly is he saying here this seems so obscure but the more that you think about it and the more that you discuss it and so forth the more it starts to become clear and that's also what Nietzsche is saying here in terms of reading everything's just given to us but actually if it forces us to think about things and just doesn't give everything to us we get so much more out of it as a material and as a book and exactly what it's trying to say and from that of course we have that wonderful point in which Nietzsche also wants to say as well that we don't ever have to just read and understand a thing in one given way but we can always have that affirmation of lots of different perspectives and views of how you can read those aphorisms and understand his philosophy it should never just be this concrete thing and it's also the point in which you get in philosophy itself it's kind of like well why don't you just skip to the last bit of the argument altogether because if the start of the book is going to be all the start you can just skip pretty much to the end and you'll get to the point where you need to get to you get that in traditional philosophy um like in Descartes for instance you could just pretty much more or less skip straight to the end and Nietzsche sort of challenges that as well as saying well you can't really skip this can you you have to read pretty much everything back to front because if you don't then you're going to miss out on something and the wee thing that you do miss out on might be just those couple of sentences that completely just take you aback and force you to rethink everything so that's also another really interesting deep point isn't it as well Nietzsche's saying here that normally we forget about those little things that goes on within books like those couple of sentences but then we think by god sometimes all what it takes is just two or three sentences that just make the entire chapter or the entire book sometimes that you were reading because those are the ones that you're really enticed with in the first place continuing on i no longer feel as you do this cloud which i see under me this blackness and heaviness in which i laugh precisely this is your thundercloud you look up when you desire to be exalted and i look down because i am exalted who among you can at the same time laugh and be exalted he who climbs upon the highest mountain laughs at all tragedies real or imaginary untroubled scornful outrageous this is how wisdom wants us to be she's a woman and never loves anyone but a warrior you tell me life is hard to bear but if it were otherwise why should you have your pride in the morning and your resignation in the evening life is hard to bear but do not pretend to be so tender we are all of us pretty fine asses and asses of burden what we have in common with the rosebud which trembles because a drop of dew is lying upon it it is true we love life not because we're used to living but because we're used to loving there's always a certain madness in love but also there is a certain method in madness and to me too who love life it seems that butterflies and soap bubbles 
and whatever is like them among men know most about happiness to see these light foolish dainty affecting little souls flutter about that moves zarathustra to tears and to song i should only believe in a god who understood how to dance and when i beheld my devil i found him serious thorough profound solemn it was a spirit of gravity through him all things are ruined one does not kill by anger but by laughter come let us kill the spirit of gravity i have learned to walk since then i have run i have learned to fly since then i do not have to be pushed in order to move now i am nimble now i fly now i see myself under myself now a god dances within me thus spoke zarathustra so initially we have that discussion of wanting to be exalted and we can relate that into when we want our opinion or view and then wanting that to be accepted and validated by others and we can have a good example here in which people live vicariously through wanting to be validated and accepted by others and their opinion through social media it's quite a great example in which you say well take a little picture of a coffee or what you've eaten and then you almost want that to be validated by someone else or a collection of people to say well actually yes what you had to eat what you had to drink what you purchased was actually great purchase good for you and then we of course have that horrible tie-in in which then all the corporations and so forth are like when you use this product please show it on social media that you take a little picture and use this hashtag and then it's free advertising and then everybody of course then joins in with the whole herd mentality of yes it is a great product isn't it whilst all the corporations and so forth just rub their hands together gleefully at the same time because it's all free advertising in Nietzsche's view you get as well when you have that wonderful line you look up when you desire to be exalted and I look down because I am exalted and it's that point in which you have in social media people looking up all the time wanting to be exalted wanting to be validated through their opinions but at the same time what Nietzsche is trying to say well your own opinion is validated your own view is validated you don't need other people to validate your own opinion about things your own view is absolutely fine because it's a subjective view what you need to do is have the power and conviction and belief in your own thoughts rather than for somebody else to tell you that your thoughts are okay to have for instance you could go into the social media example did you enjoy the drink good then you enjoyed the drink you don't need somebody else to go and then tell you you enjoyed it because you know you enjoyed it yourself from your own experience and so we have sort of rounding off the discussion for reading and writing section here this relation into donkeys and being burdened and also that relates back into the earlier discussion as well of the three metamorphoses and the camel and the burdens and weights upon society that we have has been a burden and weighing us down we have that return back here again how the herd mentality social norms and so forth weighing us all down that forces us to not be writers not be thinkers 
And what he says there, what ultimately should we do? Kill the spirit of gravity. What does that mean? Kill the burden, basically, that's weighing us down. And when we do that, we have that nice, beautiful line as well. What happens is then you have that possibility of creation without burden, without being weighed down from expectations, weighed down from the norms. And what happens is, is he says, a God dances within me. You're free to create, basically. You're free to have your own opinion. You're free to validate your own thoughts. You're free to create. You're no longer this passive, submissive person who doesn't have their own beliefs anymore. You've precisely turned into the opposite of that. Someone who has beliefs, passion, thought, and conviction. And so really is Nietzsche then arguing that there's a preference for reading over writing or writing over reading. And I don't think that's the case, ultimately. I think he's what he's trying to say is that writing requires belief, passion, conviction, thought. And then that in turn can make us great readers because then we can absorb somebody else's passions, beliefs, but also have the ability to always take what they say with a pinch of salt and always be critical of what they say, but at the same time enable them to challenge our own views, challenge our own opinions. And we never want to just become this passive, submissive, either writer or reader. One that completely just gives in to the stereotypes or tropes and gives into the expectations and on the other hand completely accepts another person's viewpoint at face value and I thought what would be a nice wee complimentary reading as well and discussion for this episode is a great wee article called Nietzsche's 10 rules for writers penned in a letter to his lover and muse which is Lou Andrea Salome, who is the first female psychoanalyst, who also corresponds with Freud about human nature. And this is a nice wee article from the website brainpickings.org, as well as it says here, Smitten with a 21-year-old Andrea Salome, Nietzsche decided to make her not only his intellectual protégé, but also his wife, allegedly proposing marriage at only their second meeting earlier that year of 1882. Despite Salome's rejection of his romantic advances and subsequent break in the friendship, she retained a lifelong respect for his mind and work. So we have this wonderful sort of 10 points that Nietzsche gives Salome there. And it's written between August 8th and August 24th of 1882. So let's have a little read and discussion of these 10 rules as we go along. Number one, of prime necessity is life. A style should live. Number two, style should be suited to the specific person with whom you wish to communicate. So for these first two points, it's quite easy to understand as well. A style shouldn't be quite boring to read. It shouldn't be bland. It should be lively. It should be enjoyable to read. And then you want to write according to whatever is the correct discipline or style that's appropriate to who you're writing towards. So a scientific approach will write towards whatever scientific style it's within. 
And that'll apply across board as well. If you're going to write towards somebody who's academic, that's going to be different from somebody every day and so forth. So moving on then, number three. First, one must determine precisely what and what do I wish to say and present before you may write. Writing must be mimicry, which is a great point towards anybody, of course, that you have to plan your argument as well. You've got to plan out exactly what you want to say. So a great plan will help the overall argument because you've got down exactly what you want to say and it structures what you want to say. Point four. Since the writer lacks many of the speaker's means, he must in general have for his model a very expressive kind of presentation of necessity. The written copy will appear much paler. Which is, again, we have the actual preference of a speech over writing here because you can have so much more expression, so much more life and vivacity is a good word, in towards speech over writing, in which writing's got to make up for it. He's saying here, in the use of expressions such as exclamation marks and so forth that he uses as well, that all makes it much more expressive and lively on paper to make up for the lack of that ability of being able to talk it. Point five, the richness of life reveals itself through a richness of gestures. One must learn to feel everything. The length and retarding of sentences, inner punctuations, the choice of words, the pausing, the sequence of arguments, the gestures. And so that's just a great point in which you've got to make sure that there's a good rhythm towards the overall thing which you're trying to say. Point six, be careful with periods. Only those who have long duration of breath while speaking are entitled to periods. With most people, the period is a matter of affectation. That's a good stylistic point as well, just to make sure you're putting your full stops in the right points. Point seven, style ought to prove that one believes in an idea. Not only that one thinks it, but also feels it. And I think this is a really crucial point here as well, is that whenever somebody is arguing for a given point, if you don't believe in what you're saying, it'll read absolutely rubbishly, even on an unconscious level as well. It's got to have that belief, passion, conviction, exactly what he says in Zarathustra as well, for what you're going to project towards the audience or project towards the reader as well, and then you can feel basically that person's conviction when you read it as well. Point eight, the more abstract a truth which one wishes to teach, the more one must first entice the senses. So this is a great point, especially dealing with such complex subject like philosophy at times as well, when it can get into such abstract concepts and ideas. It just makes sense for you to move towards an easy to understand absolutely almost ridiculously simple examples as well in order to break down the complexity of it and also being able to make sure you're able to explain it in an absolutely everyday sense as well and which is a great way to try to explain uh, for instance Plato's whole metaphysics of the idea in which you have the, got the great example of Plato's cave and the prisoners in Plato's cave, because suddenly you take these abstract things 
and then you put them down into an everyday example, it makes it much more relatable and easy to understand for people. And that's that point as well. If you're going to say something that's complex, make sure people are going to be able to understand in a simple and easy way. Point nine strategy on the part of a good writer of prose consists of choosing his means for stepping close to poetry but never stepping into it so i think nietzsche's saying as well is get step close to poetry means make sure what you're saying sounds really good but make sure you're not just going overboard with it and over the top but make sure it sounds pleasant for the listener to read and like you become enamored with it so much like poetry Point 10. It is not good manners or clever to deprive one's reader of the most obvious objections. It is very good manners and very clever to leave it to one's reader alone to pronounce the ultimate quintessence of our wisdom. So it's a good point as well whenever you're writing to raise the most obvious objections to it as it comes to you in order to try and then show how a counter-argument can be made to what you're trying to argue for. But also he's saying here, well, you're not going to answer absolutely every problem that you can think of. In fact, it's good to answer the obvious ones you can think of, but always leave it up to the reader to try and think of the ultimate problems for themselves with what they're reading. And so we have a great quote as well from the article from Brain Pickings that will nicely end us off for this episode in which Salome remarks upon quite beautifully her thoughts of Nietzsche's aphoristic style that he has. And this is what she says. To examine Nietzsche's style for causes and conditions means far more than examining the mere form in which his ideas are expressed. Rather, it means that we can listen to his inner soundings. His style came about through the willing, enthusiastic, self-sacrificing and lavish expenditure of great artistic talents and an attempt to render knowledge through individual nuancing reflective of the excitations of a soul in upheaval. Like a gold ring, each aphorism tightly encircles thought and emotion. Nietzsche created, so to speak, a new style in philosophical writing, which up until then was couched in an academic tones or an effuse poetry. He created a personal style. Nietzsche not only mastered language, but also transcended its inadequacies. What had been mute achieved great resonance. Many thanks for listening to the episode. I hope you enjoyed my little discussion of the section Reading and Writing in Nietzsche's Thus Spoke Zarathustra. Feel free to drop me an email at my address dissectingphilosophy at gmail.com and I could be also found on Twitter at I am a rubber man. Many thanks for listening and I hope you join us next time.